0: you
1: could go to your local bookstore, talk to a person, and they could point you in the right direction.
0: Well, but it's scary, Anne.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Anne Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 144. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader, what should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, first today, I wanted to share this adorable story, What Should I Read Next? listener Laura shared in the comments from episode 142 when I chatted with children's librarian Sarah Peden about the moment that makes a child a reader. Here's what Laura's comment says. I witnessed a scene while visiting a community library in college that reminded me of the delight of unlimited checkouts. Two boys went up to the front desk and asked how many books they were allowed to check out and the librarian responded, well, how many can you carry? The boys just looked at each other gleefully and ran off to grab books. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing Laura. And I know sometimes comment sections can be a little intimidating, but ours is such a fun and warm place to hang out. Find the show notes and comments for today's episode at what should I read next podcast.com slash one forty four. And I always shout out the comment section URL at the end of each episode. If you want to join the conversation and I hope you do. And readers, thank you so much for your pre-orders for my book. I'd rather be reading the delights and dilemmas of the reading life coming out September 4th. Early sales are strong, which makes a world of difference for the book. The more copies you pre-order, the more retailers will carry the book and the larger the print run will be. And the more book lovers will find it, which sounds like a wonderful circle of bookish goodness to me. If you enjoy this podcast and want to say, thank you, please pre-order the book. It would mean the world to me and contribute so much to the book's success and doing that soon or even today would help even more. Another thing you could do is come see me on book tour. I'm kicking things off in St. Louis at the Novel Neighbor just before I'd Rather Be Reading is out, so that's fun. Meet me there on Saturday, September 1st. I'll be in Chicago on Sunday, September 2nd at an event hosted by Page One Books. Meet me in Franklin, Indiana, that's the Indianapolis area, on Wednesday, September 5th, and I'll be at my hometown bookstore, Carmichael's, on Thursday, September 6th. This is just the beginning of my book tour. We will have more news and events to announce soon. Please get the information on these and all events at annbogle.com slash events. That's Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L dot com slash events. I would love to tell you happy reading in person this fall. Today's guest, Travis Mazurf, made a seriously drastic lifestyle change that upped his reading game by a mile. No spoilers, I'll let him tell you all about it. We're also tackling bookstore anxiety, like where should you look in the store to look for your next read? How do you get past the nerves and talk to your friendly local bookseller? And is there a secret key to understanding the prominently displayed tables up front? Readers, I am up to the challenge, and I love chatting with Travis about all this and more. Let's get to it. Travis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ann. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today because when your submission form came in from what should I read next slash guest First of all, I was filled with envy, which is always a good sign that you make a good guest. There's so much to talk about.
0: Yeah, well, I have to say the last year or so of my life uh, has been an interesting one in a very good way. In April of last year, my wife and I, we're each in our late 30s. Um, we don't have any children. And so in April of last year, we sort of left our jobs and and uh, decided to do a year of travel, which we're actually just wrapping up right now. But uh, over the past year, we visited all sorts of different countries. We spent two months in Vietnam. We spent uh, almost three months in France, a couple months in South America. We did a road trip across the United States, which took over a month, which was something I'd always wanted to do. So anyway, it's been, yeah, it's been great. It's been a wonderful uh, past year.
1: How long had you all been thinking that over? Where did that idea first take root to go around the world for a year?
0: We thought about it for a long time. I feel like people that do things kind of like we did fall into two camps. Either something happens, uh, someone loses a loved one or there's a crisis with work or something like that. And people just, you know, head off. They want to do something different with their lives. Uh, my wife, Nicole, and I were the complete opposite. <laughs> we had sort of toyed with this idea for, Years, frankly, and, you know, things career wise might line up good for one of us, but then the other person, it wasn't a good time to leave. We also had to save, frankly, a substantial amount of money <laughs> in order to do that. And so that took some time. And then I will also say us both just agreeing on what we wanted to, the trip to look like took a long time. I mean, we we definitely had some financial constraints. We also had what we were interested in. Uh, Nicole loves France. She'd been to France many times. A goal of hers was was to spend an extended amount of time in France, which we ended up doing. My goal was I wanted to get a little further out of my comfort zone. So I was a lot more interested in the Vietnam portion of the trip.
1: How long was your original list of countries? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it was very long and, and I'll I'll tell you this uh originally when we when we left we were planning to leave for 6 months uh-huh. and then when we got about halfway through the trip we thought well let's uh, you know we, we don't want to go back quite yet we were in France uh kind of at the end of that 6 months we had kind of a problem the visas for Americans you're only allowed to stay in sort of the the Western European countries. They call it the Schengen zone, which basically just includes most of Western Europe. You're only allowed to stay for three months and then you have to leave for three months. And we stayed for 87 days. So we were we were really at the end of our time. And so what that meant when we wanted to extend the trip was that we needed to figure out where to go and it couldn't be in Europe. We, we truly spent nights with Google Maps out. I would just go around the world naming off countries and <laughs> Nicole and I would each give the country a score between one and five and then we would write those down and we, we kind of came up with a list of the countries that seemed mutually exciting to us. And then some of them, for instance, one place we would love to have visited on our trip that we didn't was Japan. We we started getting really excited about that. Then we started looking into just how the cost of living there, things like groceries, places to stay, it was just out of our budget. So that's when we finally ended up kind of settling on South America. And we ended up spending about seven weeks in Chile Spent some time in Peru. We went to Machu Picchu. And then, you know, that's we also then came back to the US and did a big road trip through the US, which was a lot of fun.
1: Was that jarring to spend months at a time in these international countries and then travel the US in I'm assuming a motor vehicle?
0: Actually living in Manhattan for the past seven years, we didn't own a car yeah. uh, when we were in Manhattan. So the first thing we had to do on our road trip was purchase a car, which was kind of oh, fun itself. <laughs> Culturally, I will say, you know, spending – we spent about nine months or so outside of the U.S., and I will say that that can be tough. I mean we were almost exclusively in countries where English is not the first language and neither Nicole nor I speak any foreign languages, so it can be a little isolating. I'll tell you what we did and what I think anyone that's going to travel for that amount of time probably ends up doing is we stayed a little bit longer at each stop. So typically we would rent an Airbnb or something similar like that where we had a kitchen. And so that kind of allowed us to not feel like we were just on the go the whole time. We, I mean, we would have days we were just kind of hanging out where we were staying rather than trying to take in all of the, you know, sites that you could see. We gave ourselves plenty of time. And then when we came back to the U.S., yeah, it it is jarring. I think when you spend that much time outside the U.S., uh, coming back and walking into a supermarket, feeling totally comfortable there, is, I, I mean, it actually takes some getting used to. You walk up to the checkout person and you can speak to them and it's not a problem over whether your credit card's going to work and it does take a little time to co- sort of get back into that mode.
1: I might've mentioned a little bookish MVI experienced of your mention that you tried to stop at as many bookstores as possible while you were going coast to coast.
0: So I will say this, anyone that wants to sort of enhance their reading life, at least have more time to read, I would definitely recommend uh, leaving your job. Uh, <laughs> Nicole and I, we don't have any children. So uh, we really we really had other than looking at, uh, you know, seeing the sites and doing that type of thing. We had a lot of time to read. And, and I would say over the course of our trip, reading really became more of a hobby to us. Once we got back to the United States in each of the stops, kind of in our coast-to-coast road trip, we would pick out bookshops that we wanted to stop into. That's also where we frankly listened to this podcast. I I bet there was no one in the world – Listening to this podcast more than we were during <laughs> that time. I mean, it was almost exclusively what we were playing in our car, um, which was fun because I will say this listening to this podcast is a great way to spur conversations among two people that love to read. So we would, even though these shows usually last about an hour, I would say that it took Nicole and I usually two hours to uh, listen to each episode while we were driving because we would always hit pause and then we'd discuss something that was said and then just kind of go from there. So, but yeah, to your original question, it was a lot of fun to hit a lot of these different, usually independent, uh, smaller bookstores along the way that maybe we'd read about, just kind of see what was going on in the different shops.
1: How did you decide where to go?
0: We'd usually just start Googling or if someone gave us a tip or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's how-
1: mm-hmm. Now I want to stop and put in a public service announcement for IndieBound.org because people hit me up all the time on um, email or social media saying, do you know about any bookstores in Austin or do you know about any bookstores in Colorado? And sometimes I do, but if I don't, I always go to IndieBound. Dot org. That's I N D I E bound.org. And they have a bookstore finder tool. So you can input your city and the range of miles that you're willing to go out of bounds, like 25 miles to 200 miles. This is just public service. Readers need to know this because my family does the same thing. Anytime that we're driving through a city, we're always looking for books and coffee. Those are our priorities. We want good coffee and a local bookstore. What were some of your favorites you visited, Travis?
0: One of our favorites, in fact, we were just there yesterday because we're um, sort of back in New York City, um, at least looking for apartments now.
1: Oh, wow. But we
0: were in the, um, the Strand. I don't know if you've been in the Strand. I in, love uh, the
1: Strand. I mean, I think everyone loves the Strand.
0: Yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you, for people that haven't been to the Strand, what I love about it is that number one in Manhattan, most retail spaces tend to be very small, but the Strand actually has a, a pretty large footprint, so there's a lot of books in it. And they also sell a nice mix between new and used books, which I think is a lot of fun. They have a lot of uh, variety. So I love the Strand. So that was uh, that's sort of one of our favorites. We stopped in Ojai, California, which is a couple hours outside of Los Angeles. It's kind of a neat little town. There's a place there called Bart's Books, which is a really cool bookshop. The walls are actually kind of made of bookshelves. And so it's kind of an indoor outdoor concept. That's that's a pretty neat place. I guess in Austin, uh, Book People. So it was a, mm-hmm. another great one.
1: So having not been to Book People, what sets that one apart?
0: I'll tell you exactly what sets that one apart. And this this is uh, something I love in bookstores: is the shelf talkers. And at Book People, everywhere you look, you're getting new ideas from the the notes that are sort of scribbled down and put on the shelves about the books.
1: Yes, I'm a total shelf talker junkie. And what we're talking about are those little, often they're like index card size. Does that sound right to you? Yes. They go on the bookshelf with the book and it'll say like, Anne says pick this up if you love this. And that's amazing. And I couldn't put it down and read it, read it, read it.
0: I'm sort of working up the confidence as a reader to be the type of person that approaches the people working in the bookstore and actually engage them in a conversation about what I, what I like to read and asking for suggestions, but I'm not quite there yet. Travis,
1: you bought groceries in Indonesia. <laughs>
0: That's right. But I, I can't talk to someone about uh, reading in a, in, a, in a bookstore. But for whatever reason, I, I feel like I'm still a little bit intimidated. So for me, I feel like I get to have just a, a one sided conversation through these shelf
1: talkers. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. they're there for you. We might have a, what should I read next homework? Uh,
0: fair enough. Fair enough. I, I would love some
1: homework. What would you like to ask these bookstore employees if you actually worked up to do so?
0: I think what I would enjoy doing is frankly, kind of what this podcast uh-huh. does, giving the type of book that I like and then also some of the areas that you know maybe I would like to expand and I'll be honest with you the other the other thing I would be very curious to sort of hear someone that's in in that book world on a daily basis. I'm always very curious how people navigate the section that's almost always right when you walk into the bookstore, which is the contemporary sort of literary fiction new releases. Mm -hmm. I look at that, and it's almost in every independent bookstore that you walk into, that's sort of front and center. And I have to say, I really am always a little baffled by that section because I don't really know what I'm looking at other than the pictures. I seldom recognize any of the author's names. And so Other than me just picking up every book and trying to read the little back description, I don't really have a system for how to navigate that section of the bookstore. And and that's something I'd be curious to talk to people about. I don't know if you – I mean do you have any thoughts
1: on that at all? Well, it's not easy because that is the broadest area of the bookstore. Even if I walk into my local bookstore like three times in a week, I can't stop looking at the new releases, even though I know they haven't changed. So that's the shelf I'm visualizing right now. But, you know, they're not broken up into genres, except fiction and nonfiction is how they do it a lot of places. Some bookstores have loose divisions, like smaller stores will often have mysteries, uh, you know, hardcover fiction and paperback fiction and, you know, science fiction. Like they'll break up those genres, but you don't have that helping hand on those front tables. You said that you wished you had a system. Do you have a system for other areas of the bookstore?
0: Well, I feel like in other sections of the bookstore, I tend to gravitate to those areas where I tend to have read some books. Mm -hmm. And so part of the fun ends up being seeing books that I've read and it kind of takes me back to when I was reading those books well, as I'm sort of scanning the shelf, I might see something that for whatever reason catches my eye. And in some of the other sections, I might actually know the authors a little bit as well. That's really not much of a scientific system, but that that is kind of the system I use. But in the sort of the new releases, I for the most part, I don't recognize the authors because they're all new books. I haven't read any of them. Mm-hmm. I guess I just really don't have that system.
1: Travis, is this a good time to talk about what you're looking for? Because a lot of people just ignore that new release table and that's their habit. And they are great with that. But it sounds like you're maybe wishing to make a change.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I definitely fall into that category of right now, I just skip it. I would say I'm always looking to sort of expand the sort of the sections of the genres that I'm comfortable navigating. And so definitely kind of the new releases would would be something I would definitely be interested in uh, knowing a little bit more about.
1: You've written that you really enjoy talking books with friends and with people you meet, maybe when you're traveling. Do you feel like you're missing out there?
0: Definitely. There's some genres that I feel like I know pretty well and and if I'm being honest it's only within the last year or so that I've really taken reading a little bit more seriously I I've, I've always been a, a a bit of a reader but really never would have prior to a year ago for instance like listened to a podcast on um <laughs> on what books to read I right, mean that just right. wasn't something I was doing uh, you know part of that was uh, it was just sort of a time thing, uh, you know, with work. I I always sort of felt like I was for, and I, and I, looking back, I don't think this was the right attitude, but it was just the attitude I had that, oh, I don't really have time to be really delving into reading as more of a hobby than a pastime, and so because I'm kind of newer to really getting into reading, I would say. Yeah, there's some genres I feel confident with and if some and if I meet with a friend or something if we talk about books or someone's throwing out titles, I'm very up on it. Like for instance, I would say the sort of business, self-improvement, those types of non-fiction books. Mm-hmm. I know most of them mm-hmm. just through the different media I'm taking in. I sort of tend to see those titles.
1: Like what are a couple of the books you're thinking of there?
0: Well, for instance, like I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: He wrote the four hour work week back in the day. I listened to his podcast a lot. There's often books discussed on that, but they sort of fall into that, that self-improvement genre. I'm also a big fan of um, Ryan Holiday. Mm -hmm. He, uh, Kind of he writes on stoicism actually the the philosophy, and he has a monthly email newsletter that 's excellent for book picks, but again, kind of in that same genre, so
1: so if there 's a TED talk, you can find that yourself
0: yes, okay. absolutely, yeah, something that 's going to be discussed in a TED talk oftentimes I, I will sort of be on board with that, and then if someone 's talking about literary fiction. It's like, like for instance, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking for new books, and I went down the list of Pulitzer Prize winners um, in fiction, and I, I haven't heard of most of the books on the list. I actually just read Olive Kitteridge, uh-huh. which won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago, and up until a few few weeks ago, I just had never even heard the title nor the author, <laughs> so.
1: What do you think? Oh,
0: I actually, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that book at all. I haven't
1: read it, but it's on my shelf. Oh, okay. If you wanted to read her later work, um, like "My Name Is Lucy Barton" and "Anything Is Possible," came out last spring, but I haven't read the Pulitzer winner.
0: Uh, I enjoyed it. It's set in a small town in Maine, and it's it's really a collection of short stories, all tied together by this character who's kind of an older. Grouchy woman who in, in in some of the short stories she's the the lead character in the other ones she just plays a bit part so it was really kind of an interesting way to do a book yeah I, I enjoyed that one
1: but contemporary literature and I think you also said like historical fiction science fiction
0: historical fiction is one where I know there's a lot of books mm-hmm. coming out I know it's I know it's a very popular genre. A few years back, I read a book called New York by Edward Rutherford that I really enjoyed. It was sort of an epic walk of multi-generations through the founding of New York up through kind of the, the modern day. And you really sort of learned the history of, I guess, specifically Manhattan. I, I thought that was great. I mean, I thought it was a neat way to do a book. I think that's the only historical fiction book I've ever read. Uh, so that, that's kind of another area where I would um, love to explore deeper. Um, same with science fiction. Uh, there's also a, a a lot of nonfiction books out there that aren't the sort of self improvement or written by a business figure. I just know that there's there's a lot out there that I'm not tapping into.
1: What about travel writing? Have you read a lot of that, or is that a genre that you'd be interested in exploring?
0: In my mind, it's possible to travel without traveling by reading some really good travel literature. I haven't read a lot of it, but I will say that I did just read this book called Duck Season. It was about a family that uh, recently moved to a small town in France stayed for like 9 months and sort of ingrained themselves in the small town there. That was actually kind of an inspiration for some of the travels we did in France. I thoroughly enjoyed that book, but again, um, you know, it's not something I'm real well versed in travel writing.
1: That sounds like a lot of fun and really exciting, but I'm a little afraid because some people like would say, "Okay, I'm going to read 10 books and whatever genre and they're going to be like, "Oh, that's why I don't read those." I guess that could happen, but you want to try for yourself.
0: Yeah, I wanna try for myself. I will also say that I've zeroed in on the type of book I I like, no matter the genre. My job, I mean my profession, what I do is uh I'm an attorney. That involves a lot of reading and writing and 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 actually very critical reading and writing. So one thing that I enjoy in literature is literature that's not what I would call meandering. I like things that are to the point, even though as we'll discuss, that could mean that the books are really long themselves. (laughs) For instance, I don't enjoy in fictional books, I don't enjoy characters that go on and on about their feelings necessarily, or a description of the scene. I, I like books that can say a lot with a few words.
1: No beautiful prose. No waxing poetic.
0: I think that's very true. Yes.
1: Okay. Well, that is really good to know about what you're looking for uh, when it comes to the books that you are likely to enjoy. With that in mind, really, I just want to hear about the books you love. Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, you know how this works. You get to tell me three books you love, one you don't, and what you've been reading. And we'll talk about what you should read next. Okay. I'm excited. What's your first one?
0: Two of them are actually series. So I'm actually uh, sort of recommending here a total of 26 books, but I'll I'll speak to them as the series as a whole.
1: So you have like 14,000 pages of your three loves.
0: (laughs) That's exactly right. right. Well played. I will also say that this is the type of reading I was doing. I read all these books sort of while we were away this past year. That was probably the only way I would be able to tackle this much reading. So the the first series is called The Years of Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro. An amazing, amazing history. I, I really would implore anyone that has the least bit of interest in U.S. 20th century history And any interest in politics whatsoever to read these books, it's it's really this author's life work. Um, He started writing these books in the mid-70s, and the series, there's still one more book yet to be published that covers Lyndon Johnson's, the the years of his presidency. So at this point, I've read a little over 3,200 pages. And we've just got to the point of the Kennedy assassination when Lyndon Johnson takes over as president. But I think whatever anyone's politics, whether or not you care about Lyndon Johnson, what these books do is they're a prism or a lens that you can look at the Great Depression in the United States, you can look at World War II, you can look at uh, the Civil Rights Movement, The Kennedy assassination, which was a turning point in U.S. history. Lyndon Johnson was – he was certainly involved as a politician um, in all those events. And then just he is a person. He's a fascinating character study, extremely driven, extremely effective individual, but often took things way too far and could be, be very nasty to people. It's an amazing series. And I'm just curious, have you read these or are you familiar with that book at all?
1: No, I haven't read it. And I was just having the conversation with myself that went, wow, Travis, that title sounds really dry. But then I can hear echoes of myself telling people Doris Kearns Goodwin's work, which are called things like The Life of Eleanor Roosevelt. Or, well, I guess they're a little catchier with Team of Rivals about Lincoln, but... A Lincoln biography maybe doesn't sound like riveting reading if you were traumatized in history class as a child, but like she really makes it come alive and there's all the scandal and intrigue and relationships and it's fascinating.
0: I frankly cannot say enough good things about this series of books. I know that you, I was just re- listening to a recent episode. It was the, the guest was a, a woman named Tracy Haddock. And she mentioned that David McCullough was sort of like an adopted grandfather to her because she uh-huh. loved these presidential biographies. And I have to say, if Tracy is out there listening, <laughs> I implore I implore her to give these, these books a uh, chance. But a- at any rate, that's what I'll say about those books. Um, the next is a 21-book series written between the years of 1964. And I believe 1984. These are fictional thrillers. They're called the Travis McGee series, written by John McDonald. These are very short books, very quick reads. The first book in the series is called The Deep Blue Goodbye, and for anyone interested in reading the series, I would suggest just starting at the start and working your way through them, because the central character, this Travis McGee, the books build on themselves in that he he actually ages as the years go by. But what he is, is he's sort of a like a James Bond character, but of a different stripe. The similarity is that he's a bachelor that... There's often a, a fist fight or something like that in the book. He he can handle himself very very good that way, but he's really a, a societal dropout who lives on this houseboat in Florida. He always says that he's taking his retirement in chunks, which basically means he sort of lives the good life until he runs out of money. And then he calls himself a salvage operator in that people will hire him to recover things that have been taken or stolen from them, and he'll keep half the proceeds. So that's the setup for each of the books. These are books that have been in the press a little bit in the last few years. They were re-released I believe by random house in 2013. And so you, you, sort of saw him pop up in some magazines and whatnot. And Lee child, the guy that wrote the, uh, Jack Reacher books, wrote the inter- introduction, mm-hmm. said these books were very influential books for him. And and I have to say, I just got very into them. They're great books. I would recommend them. So that would be the second book. And then they're the second series I recommend. And then the third is just a standalone East of Eden by uh, John Steinbeck. I guess every I don't have to go on about that book. I feel like most people are probably familiar with that book. But I will say it, it's sort of John Steinbeck's masterpiece work. And I I just really enjoyed it. I feel like it's a book that I can bring up with most people that enjoy reading and they'll know what I'm talking about. So Mm -hmm. I enjoy that.
1: Okay. So books are a big point of connection for you.
0: They really are. I I will say that that's sort of one of the things that when I pick books to read, I'm often very biased with respect to whether or not I think other people that I run into will know about the book. So I, I tend not to really like to read anything that's overly obscure.
1: That is good to know. All right, Travis, what is the book you are not in love with? Uh, Strongly dislike, I think was your, uh, your term.
0: Yeah, I would say Strong Dislike. Some of your guests come on and say that they hate a book. In this case, I definitely didn't hate this book, but I would say that Strongly Dislike is very fair description, and that is A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline L'Engle. Of course, this book is, is very much in,
1: uh, <laughs> people are yelling at their, their speakers right now.
0: Well, I know, I know. <laughs> and, and I don't, I mean, even few days after I submitted my application to be on this podcast, you had a post on your Instagram where you had gone to your local free library little box and you had dropped off books that you had had in your home and mentioned that you found a Wrinkle in Time hardback to take with you.
1: Yeah. Are you the one
0: that put it there? If I, if I lived in Louisville, I would have been the person <laughs> putting it there. And when I saw your Instagram post, I thought, why would Anne want to bring that book back into <laughs> her home? Leave leave that book in the uh, free library. Uh,
1: (laughs) Well, here, I'll give you something to work with. I remember really loving it, but I haven't actually read it in a long time.
0: Maybe I'll start with what I like about the novel. It is a hopeful novel. It's an inspiring novel. I like a book that is uplifting. That is very much this book. It's very good versus evil. What I don't like about the book is I just do not believe it is aged well at all. The plot is incredibly simplistic. The characters the same way. Why I think this book is talked about and I'm setting the movie aside. But, but <laughs> I was going to
1: say, yeah, race yeah, Oprah, and Mindy.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I think if you you know setting that aside, I think why this book has made a name for itself is that it's really a cornerstone on which the young adult books that are so popular today were sort of built. It it was an early book in this genre, at least that's my understanding. But I I think if you compare like, say, uh, the Harry Potter books or some of these other books to it. I mean, it's really no comparison if you read it today. And like you said, people are probably screaming at the radio right now, but I just don't think there's any way this book would be published today. It it certainly doesn't read (laughs) like anything that uh, is is a popular work today. Definitely my strong dislike.
1: That's fair. And it's also totally okay for every reader to love or not love the books they love without having to explain why except to themselves. And you don't even have to do that. But if you want to find books on your own that you're really going to enjoy reading next, being able to articulate why to yourself in your own head is really helpful. So, okay. Soapbox moment over. What are you reading right (laughs) now, Travis?
0: So I've been reading some, I, I just recently finished uh, the Lord of the Flies by William, William Golding. It's sort of another one of those East of Eden kind of book that a lot of people read in high school. It's a short read. I'm really glad that I read it. I just finished a fantasy novel, which I thought was okay, called An Unkindness of Magicians by Cat Howard. I, I enjoy the fantasy genre generally. I didn't love this book. And then I'm currently reading a book that many people consider the greatest book on the sport of basketball ever written. It's called The Breaks of the Game by uh, David Halberstam. It's about the um, Portland Trailblazers team of the late 70s. So I, I've been thoroughly enjoying that book, probably just because I thoroughly enjoy the sport of basketball.
1: Well, if you want to branch out into like more nonfiction, that's a great way to do it. You could go to your local bookstore, talk to a person and say, I'm looking for books about nuclear fission, field <laughs> hockey, the Democratic Party, and they could point you in the right direction.
0: Well, it, but it's scary, Anne. As we talked about talking to those book people, but no, I absolutely, you gave me that as homework and I absolutely am going to try that the next time I go into a bookstore.
1: Get your apartment, take a couple months to get settled, then you can do it.
0: (laughs) All right. Sounds good.
1: Do you feel like you are um, someone who enjoys streaks in reading? I'm just noticing how you're currently working through a book that's thousands of pages and with more to come. You really enjoyed this 21 series of novels. Is that a thing or is that just coincidence?
0: That's certainly a thing. Usually, what I do is I usually have a few books going, so I'm definitely a very streaky reader. But like, for instance, with the the Lyndon Johnson books, it was it, I would read one of the books, then maybe pick up some like a fictional book and then go back to it. But yes, Mm -hmm. very, very much a streaky reader.
1: Oh, and that's good. I'm glad you explained that because it's also true that you don't seem to need to like sit down and finish a book as quickly as possible because you need to know how it ends immediately.
0: Yeah, I think that's true.
1: Okay. Okay. That's good to know. I have some ideas for you. Are you ready to get into it? Absolutely. All right, let's do it. Okay. First of all, there's a resource I think you would be happy if you saw it out. It's called the Indie Next list. That's I-N-D-I-E for your independent bookstore, Indie Next. And once you hear that term, like if listeners haven't heard it before, you're, you'll start nos- noticing it places. Like you'll see on Publisher's descriptions that a certain book was an Indie Next pick. And what that means is that employees of independent bookstores have recommended it when it first came out or when it came out in the paperback edition, if it's a book that originally came out in hardcover, and said, I think this is great and this is why. And what it basically is, is a compilation of shelf talkers from different independent bookstores across the country. So that is a newsletter you can sign up for through your local bookstore, or you might be able to get it right on the IndieBound site at IndieBound.org. We will put the link in show notes, but not so long ago, they started making it possible for your local independent bookseller to send you out that Indie Next list directly. So that will give you a lot of just coming out contemporary fiction and nonfiction. So if you want to know what people are reading, what they're excited about, this is a great resource.
0: Yeah, that sounds great.
1: Totally free. Shows up in your inbox. Uh you can also often, many independent bookstores have uh like a little indie next newsletter. It's about the size of like, oh, it's the size of my elementary school newspaper. Does that help you? Can you visualize yes, it, Travis? Yes, yes. It's a newsletter that you can get in print, which would be kind of fun because then you can take it home and mark it up and, you know, flag it and dream about what you want to read next. Okay, so we are talking about finding you works that are more recent that people are talking about. And I've been thinking about some books as we've been talking that you may be interested in. And like one of the books I thought of was the novel of 2015. Maybe maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but it was a novel that got a ton of buzz in 2015. It's called City on Fire. It's set in New York City. It's 900 pages, but I think you can do it. There's a couple places where the momentum lags, but like right at the two thirds part, it really kicks into gear and I think you could do it. But so many people were talking about this book three years ago and they're not anymore. The danger in reading what's new and buzzy is you can't always tell when things are just out what is going to endure. So that's just a fact to consider. But also when we talk about what books you may want to enjoy reading, I'm looking for ones that have a reason for people to keep picking them up or be talking about them again so that your likelihood of being able to connect and converse with other readers about the books that you all are reading is greater. How does that sound?
0: Yeah, that sounds great. I actually remember sort of seeing some some news articles on that, uh, like you said, a few years ago. But I really don't know anything about it other than it was set in New York, I believe in the, the 70s. And it sounds great.
1: But if you're going to invest 900 pages, readers have many different reasons to pick up a book. Like I may have had 17 reasons to pick up the last book I did. And maybe City on Fire covers three. But we can talk about... What I have in mind for you, and you can you can prioritize. Okay, that sounds okay. good. Well, first of all, because of your love for your surrogate grandfather Robert Caro, I'm wondering about personal history, a memoir that came out just this spring from Catherine Graham. Do you know anything about this?
0: So I have not heard of the book. I'm familiar with Catherine Graham. She she's the or maybe is or was the owner of the Washington Post. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: She was friends with Lyndon Johnson. <laughs>
1: well, yes, exactly. She was. So she tells this really great story in the book about how uh, back in the days when security wasn't as tight, she was standing by the airfield when LBJ and company were about to get on the helicopter and take off for his ranch. And he said, hop on board. And she said, I can't. And her daughter said, mom, you should go. And she did. She just hopped on the helicopter and went to LBJ's ranch. So he does make an extended appearance in the book. So that might be a fun little way it comes together. But the things that you were saying that really made you love the years of Lyndon Johnson made me think that you might like this minuscule in comparison. It's only like 700 pages. I think it's tagged as a memoir, but it reads more like an autobiography in that it starts with her grandparents coming to the United States. So it goes way back, encompassing her life and her children's lives and her parents' lives. Her life and her career spanned so many amazing events that she was either present for or really like up close and personal. There was a big strike at the Post. At a certain point, uh, Watergate features prominently in her book the changing importance of the press in the United States and the changing relationship between people and the press and politicians and the press. She has seen a lot and she put it in these pages and she covers issues that are timely. She covers history that's not going anywhere. The first printing was like a quarter of a million copies since your odds of being able to discuss this or the topics in it with your fellow readers are high. How does that sound?
0: This sounds Wonderful. I, I will actually say that because I was just so into, so consumed with uh, Lyndon Johnson for a while. There, we actually, when we were road tripping through the U.S., we stopped at his presidential library, which is in uh, UT Austin campus. And yes. one of, one of the exhibits there is that you can listen. You you actually pick up a telephone and you can listen in on a on a phone call between uh, LBJ. And Katherine Graham, so really yeah, it's it's really pretty neat. so any at any rate, that book sounds fantastic.
1: okay. so how do you like a good murder mystery?
0: yeah, I, I, I enjoy mysteries. I just don't read them that often. Um, so yeah this this, uh, this sounds good.
1: Have you read any of the Robert Galbraith murder mysteries that are by JK. Rowling? like uh, the first one is a Cuckoo's Calling.
0: No, I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I don't be, uh, don't be embarrassed. You haven't read Harry Potter. Is that what's coming next? No, no, I've (laughs) definitely, no, I've definitely read Harry Potter. I guess I did not realize that she had written other books other than Harry Potter. And that's, that's what I'm embarrassed about.
1: Well, she did not want to be outed as the author. So she would be delighted to hear that you didn't even know. Okay. I like these for you because you've said that you like work that is uh, noteworthy in some way. Fast-paced, concisely written. Mystery lovers really like them. They're well done. I don't know how you like your mysteries, but these uh, work on two levels, like a lot of more modern mysteries do, where the detectives are figuring out exactly what happened and who's to blame and how they pulled it off. But you also have the level of the uh, personal relationships between the different characters in the book. Are you you on board for something like that?
0: Yeah, that sounds great. Are these books... They sound like they're written more solely for an adult audience, not like Harry Potter, which could sort of go with kids and adults. Is that correct?
1: These are for grown ups. Yes. Um, okay. The, okay. The first one is pretty tame. Mostly what I mean is it's not grisly. Like the second and third ones are pretty grisly. Like the the second one is the murder is gruesome and gross, but the rest of the book is fine. And the third book, J.K. Rowling has said that it gave her nightmares because she's writing about, oh, it's been a while. But I think a serial killer, um, definitely a serial abuser of women in a really nasty way. So I did a lot of heavy skimming there. So if you are a sensitive soul, a highly sensitive person, um, you might want to think twice before picking these up. But it's a great series, sold extremely well, and fans have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for book four, which J.K. Rowling announced just a couple months ago that she has finished and will have a publication date soon, which will be in late 2018 or hopefully early. And I say hopefully because I want to read the next one, 2019. So they're good books. I think they have the kind of qualities that you enjoy in fiction and Everybody is going to be talking about all four of the books in the anticipation leading up to and publication of this book four. What do you think?
0: That also sounds great.
1: Awesome. All right. I'm just going to out with it. Have you read any Julia Child?
0: Uh, The the French Cook? Yeah. I own... Mastering the Art of French Cooking, is that sort of her big cookbook?
1: Her big cookbook. But she wrote a memoir that I didn't even know about until maybe 10 years ago, even though the book has been around much longer than that. But it's called My Life in France. So this is the story of how Julia Child was working for the OSS. And then She was married to her husband, Paul, he's a diplomat, and they moved together when he was assigned to Paris. And so she arrived in the city knowing no one, not speaking the language, just trying to get her wits about her. So two things happened. She found herself surrounded by some of the best food she'd ever eaten, even though she didn't really think she was into that. And she certainly didn't know how to cook it. And she decided she was going to get her life in order and find something to do with her days because her husband was employed, but she didn't have a job by learning how to cook at the Cordon Bleu. So this is the story of how she did that, how she fell in love with food because of all the time you spent in France eating. And I don't know, do you cook? If you do, you'll appreciate this. And if you don't, you can experience it on the page vicariously and you'll never have to like dirty your oven.
0: Uh, Nicole and I are both, we definitely enjoy food and wine. Yeah, this sounds great.
1: She's so funny. I thought like, oh, mastering the art of French cooking is like a textbook. You know, this will be fine. Like maybe maybe Julia Child is important. Maybe I should read this. But you start reading the book and you're like, "Oh my gosh, this woman, like please be on my dream dinner party list. Tell me more stories she and her husband did the funniest things. Um she just sounded like she really loved life, loved food, loved her friends. She was a riot. And she was kind of scandalous for her time. Like there's this photo In the book of her and her husband in the bathtub covered with bubbles (laughs) so that it's mostly kind of appropriate. And they sent this out to their friends as like Valentine's or Christmas cards, with (laughs) some kind of funny caption.
0: I actually read the book and watched the movie a few years back called Julia and Julia. And yeah, definitely she comes across. I mean, I specifically remember in the, the movie as this uh, outsized personality. Uh, so so I definitely understand what you're saying in terms of her biography would be very interesting. Is this, did uh, she write it or is it written about her?
1: I would call it a memoir because it's the story of her time in Paris. I think it's going to make you feel wistful for the Paris of Julia Child's Day sure. and also nostalgic for the time you spent there. And now you've been gone for more than 90 days and this might make you want to go back.
0: Absolutely.
1: Before we go, I just want to throw out a few more titles that I've talked about all the time. You've heard me talk about them before, I'm sure, but I want you to hear that they're good for you. So Behold the Dreamers by Mbalo Mbe. It's set in New York City. It came out a couple years ago. It deals with immigration and politics and the haves and have nots and complicated webs of relationships. So those are issues that are not going away. It's a really good book that's not an issues book, and people will be talking about it. And then, have you read anything by David Sedaris?
0: No, I haven't, but I have at least heard of him. Uh, like, me talk pretty one day, yeah, I, I yeah, believe. Yeah. yeah, but no, I, I'm not familiar with his writing at all.
1: He writes typically in the short form in the past has written some short stories and really essays are his main thing. He's probably best characterized as a humor writer, but the source of his humor is (laughs) David and his boyfriend and David and his larger family. I can see humor as being off the beaten path for you. Um, His new book was out May 29th. It's called Calypso. Uh, Me talk Pretty One Day is very well known. Um, So is uh, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim. Left by finding his published diaries came out last year, and you know, give that a good look over. He is not for everyone, but people who love his work really love his work. But I was just reading his new one, and I was laughing hysterically on one page, and then I turned the page and I started reading a story about something tragic that had happened to his family. So the way that he can like whip you back and forth between different emotions is really deftly handled. Oh, but also sometimes, like I was telling my brother, who we have a small over lap of the books that we both love, but David Sedaris falls right in there. I was telling him that I couldn't believe I was laughing at this because it seems so inappropriate, but I could not stop laughing at the story he was telling. And the kids were like, mom, what are you reading? <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> I'm not explaining this to you, <laughs> but that would be worth picking up when you're in an actual bookstore and like browsing the jacket and flipping through to a few pages and just seeing how it strikes you.
0: Yeah, that sounds good.
1: Travis, this was fun. Okay, how do all those sound? What are you thinking?
0: All these books sound great. They all seem like they're sort of on the periphery of books that I normally read. So they'll, they'll kind of push me out of my comfort zone a little bit, which is exactly what I was looking for and excited about.
1: Well, if you're trying to branch out, I think small steps are better than like a gigantic leap. I think you're more likely to land someplace that you're happy. So I'm glad to hear it. Of those books, what do you think you might pick up next?
0: I'm just such an LBJ enthusiast right now that I, I, think, <laughs> I'm gonna, I think I'm going to dive into the personal history by Catherine Graham first.
1: I like your LBJ enthusiasm. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you think. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking books with me today.
0: This was a lot of fun.
1: Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Travis today. Did you catch him mentioning that he applied to be on the show? You can too. Go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash guest to fill out a short questionnaire all about your reading life for the chance to chat with me on the show. And while you're clicking around, I'd love to hear what you think Travis should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 144. That's 144. And it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week, What Should I Read Next gets emotional, and it's so good. My guest, Chatty Fall Brown, shares the way war shaped her family and led her father to encourage a reading spirit in her from a young age. Here she is talking about the book she considered her most precious possession. And it was the book that said, do it. Like, okay, you're going to go and apply for a grad school that's not in California. Do it. All right, you don't know anybody in Cambodia, go and do it. Just do it. And if you don't like it, you can come back home. It's okay to fail, but it's not okay to not do it. So it was the yes that kind of defined everything for me. Believe me, you do not want to miss this one. And there's even more good stuff on the horizon. What Should I Read Next listeners will be getting a very special sneak peek of my upcoming book, I'd Rather Be Reading. Make sure you're subscribed or you might miss it keep an eye on your podcast app this week. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at What Should I Read Next and at Ann Bogle. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellan Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.